Era Podcast. Research matters. In conversations with. In this series, we hear from educational leaders, experts, and enthusiasts about their special interest areas and their career experiences. Hello, I'm Professor Dominic Wise, Bureau President, and today I'm delighted to be chatting to Professor Ian Mentor, one of our two Bira John Nisbet Fellows for 2020. Ian was president of Bira from 2013 to 2015. At the University of Oxford Department of Education, he was director of professional programmes and he led the development of the Oxford Education Deanery. Ian is also a former president of the Scottish Educational Research Association and he chaired the Research and Development Committee of the University's Council for the Education of Teachers from 2008 to 2011. Ian's a Fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences and a Fellow of the Royal Society of Arts. Ian was awarded the Beera John Nisbet Fellowship for his outstanding contribution to educational research through a long and distinguished career. Ian, a warm welcome. Thank you, Dominic. It's very nice to be talking to you. So let's get down to business, as it were. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about your career and your research focus? I will, Dominic. But first of all, can I just say how honoured I feel to have been awarded this fellowship? I'm sort of doubly excited about it because I was there when the first uh, John Nisbet fellowships were awarded while I was Bureau President and Paul Black and Cathy Silver were awarded it in that year. But I also had the privilege of meeting John Nisbet on two or three occasions when I was in working in Scotland. So I I feel very touched to have been uh, given this. And it was very unexpected to hear from Bira that it was to come my way this year, along with uh, Usha, who is the other recipient, which is great. Thank you for that, Dominic. Well, thank you. And um, it's a great pleasure to to be able to, to share the moment with you. Thanks, Dom. Uh, My career and my research focus. Well, my research focus nowadays is really threefold. It's teacher education, it's education policy, and it's comparative studies in education and uh, teacher education and policy. I'll tell you how I got there. It's a bit of a long-winded story, but I started out as a primary school teacher in central Bristol, And I worked in two primary schools in Bristol for a total of nine years, where I became very involved in what we were then calling multicultural education. It was a central city school. And uh, my first kind of research and writing was really related to my interest in multicultural, multiracial education. In April 1980 in Bristol, there was what was commonly known as the St Paul's riots, which I prefer to think of as the uh, Bristol uprising, (laughs) um, which was a a protest really against the policing of families and communities in central Bristol. And I was very much reminded of that. It's 40 years ago since that happened on April the 2nd. Uh, I was very much reminded of that when 40 years later we saw uh, the destruction or the pulling down of the Colston statue in Bristol. So Bristol's very much a part of my uh, formation as a educator and researcher. 
I was involved in the National Union of Teachers at that time, and after the St Paul's uprising, we uh, had a subcommittee that wrote a quite uh, influential pamphlet called After the Fire, which looked at multicultural education in the county of Avon, as was, and at the provision of education in the St Paul's area. And that did really get me going as a, a kind of writer and researcher, albeit outside at that time of the university sector. After my nine years of teaching in primary schools, I did get a post at the College of St Paul and St Mary in Cheltenham as an initial teacher educator. That was the first of six uh, higher education establishments I worked in. Most of them changed their name after I left. I'm not sure why, but uh, St Paul and St Mary's became the University of Gloucestershire. Then after three years there and really starting to do more systematic research, I moved to Bristol Polytechnic, which later became the University of the West of England, worked there for quite a few years, then moved to London to what was the University of North London, which became London Metropolitan University, where I helped to establish the Institute for Policy Studies in Education, IPSI, which has had a very important research profile over the years. Then moved to Scotland in, I think, 2001, the University of Paisley, which became the University of the West of Scotland, and then finished up in two universities that haven't yet changed their names, the University of Glasgow, established in the 15th century, so I don't think it will, uh, where I worked for a number of years, and then finally at the University of Oxford, which I think is extremely unlikely to change its name, um, for three years before retiring from full-time work, and as well as being emeritus there still at Oxford, I've got a a link with Kazan Federal University in Russia, where I'm a senior research associate. And you might be interested, that link actually started through meeting colleagues from Kazan at a Bira conference in London uh, a few years ago. I so that's, that's the institutional history. And as I went through that, I focused more and more on teacher education policy and it was really the move to Scotland in the early part of this century that got me going on the comparative work, uh, including four nation studies within the UK, what we call home international studies. So that's a kind of in a nutshell uh, where, how my research career and profile developed through those uh, institutional settings. Thank you. I mean, it's, you're talking there about your early career reminded me of where, where I started, I, like you, I, I started um, as a primary teacher and my work in uh, Bradford, for example, but also in inner city London, brought me into contact with, with ideas around equality and equity. Uh, and there was a real uh, passion at that time. And, and, and probably like Bristol, Bradford hit the news from time to time on these sort of issues. Um, and, and in a way, yeah, current events do make us rethink and remember some of the, the good things that were going on um, at that time to, you know, in the defence of all people, really. And, and just one other observation, um, your, your Russian link is really, really interesting because as it happens, we've just agreed uh, to run a pilot webinar with colleagues in Russia and it's part of our Bira's 
work on supporting early career researchers around the world. And this, this webinar is going to be to do with supporting academic writing. So uh, that was fascinating to hear that. Um, but, but moving on to our next area, um, you and I, I think, first met in relation to work on curriculum studies. And um, I remember you being a passionate advocate of Four Nations study then and wider international study. But I'm interested in what your perception of curriculum and the curriculum in the 21st century is. Yeah, um, we had a good time working in CAPER, didn't we? Uh, <laughs> curriculum Assessment and Pedagogical Education Reform, a Four Nations group that we dubbed CAPER because it was a good fun name and we did have a bit of a caper and we got a book out of that as well as probably um, leading to the establishment of at least one Vera Sig from that group but yes curriculum studies I think is an incredibly important area of educational research and it did have a rather quiet period shall we say uh, during the 1980s 1990s making perhaps a bit of a comeback now. And for me, the key questions about curriculum are really uh, kind of sociological ones. Who decides the curriculum? How is it decided? And what kind of selection from the culture is the curriculum based on? I mean, I'll talk about Raymond Williams later on, but he was one of the first people to really point out that over history, curricula have reflected dominant values in society and whoever's been in power and in charge of curriculum construction has made a selection from the culture. And uh, Raymond Williams, along with others, was very much in favour of a core curriculum that could make the sort of centrepiece for uh, young people's learning. But was always open to the idea that it should be flexible and adaptable to local conditions and changing circumstances. And what happened in England in 1988 as a result of the Education Reform Act seems to me to have been quite damaging in a number of ways, particularly in creating a sense amongst new teachers that actually the curriculum is a fixed entity It shocked me really in my later years involved in teacher education, how much uh, beginning teachers were accepting the curriculum as a given without actually thinking about where it had come from, who had decided what should be in it, how it was structured and so on. And that does continue to worry me. I think the curriculum should be seen as much more organic and dynamic than that. And of course, again, if we think about the recent Uh, critique of uh, history in particular, the history curriculum and the the voices emerging from Black Lives Matter, the um, importance of uh, constructing a history curriculum that genuinely reflects the history of nations and of peoples without uh, hiding away behind simple slogans it's a complex matter i'm not saying it's easy but it's really important we do try to understand what has happened to get us where we are today and i think the arguments and debates that are going on at the moment about the curriculum not just in schools of course but there's a lot of work going on in universities to 
quote, decolonize the curriculum. I think this is really important and telling and indeed has much wider implications about the, the wider curriculum. It's not just the history curriculum that matters, science curriculum, mathematics, English curriculum, uh, of course, is a particular area of concern. Who selects what should be the texts within the English curriculum? We've seen many debates since the uh, national curriculum first started in 1988 about the canon that should be at the core of the English curriculum. So I do think the study of curriculum is incredibly important. There is work going on under Beerah's auspices and in a number of uh, universities in England and Scotland as well about the nature of the curriculum. And I think the most recent, am I right, Dominic, the most recent uh, issue of the Curriculum Journal has had a focus on the Welsh curriculum. So we can gain a lot by looking at um, the curricula of the four nations of the UK. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Ian. I mean, of course, Beera, you, you mentioned the establishment of the Beera Curriculum Pedagogy and Assessment SIG, of which we were both founder members. And then um, I had a spell with Louise Haywood, Kay Livingston and Steve Higgins editing the Curriculum Journal for six years. And we uh, developed the journal from its long-standing honourable tradition, but we, we moved it in slightly different directions. And now Mark Priestley and co have, have taken over as a new team and it's going from strength to strength. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great area, I think, to be involved with. But, but let us, um, let's move on now to perhaps what you see as some of the key changes in educational research um, during your career. Yeah, well, I do think um, the most important point to make here is the way that education has been politicised and that has had its knock-on effect on educational research. I mean, I started my teaching career in 1975. Um, James Callaghan gave his Ruskin speech in 1976, which in my mind was the beginning of the uh, political intervention into matters educational in a way that hadn't previously happened. Then I started my teacher education career in 1984, which was the year that the um, Thatcher government brought out its first circular on um, teacher education, started to tighten its grip on teacher education, Circular 384, that laid down certain rules about teacher education. And that was just the beginning of this long-term trend of, uh, particularly in England, of ideological interventions into education. Now, they in themselves, of course, became a focus for study, the policy studies in education took on a new lease of life as a result of these kinds of interventions. And that certainly influenced my work over the years. In the university sector, one reflection of that kind of politicization was the performative element in the what was originally the RAE, the Research Assessment Exercise, now the Research Excellence Framework. That has changed the way researchers in universities in particular understand their research and see their research and has certainly uh, had some positive benefits in terms of uh, increasing productivity, but it has also uh, led to a kind of constraining of the nature of research. And I know Beer has done a lot of work picking up the implications of that for educational research and not least in the 
recent close to practice report that you led, Dominic. Um, but I think over the years, uh, Bira has had a very careful eye on the influence of RAE and REF. And um, two other things. One is the, the so-called paradigm wars, which were important in the late 20th century, the tensions between qualitative and quantitative approaches in educational research. There was a lot of uh, argument and debate in that period, but I think we have seen a kind of reconciliation overall between those two major paradigms and indeed an improvement in the in the quality of quantitative work in educational research in the UK. And I think the, the final thing I'd like to mention is the, the, which covers several of the earlier points really, is the continuing tensions between the three relevant communities, the communities of research, of policy, and of practice. And I, I don't know if you would have been there, uh, Dominic, but I remember Estelle Morris, a former Secretary of State under Labour government uh, for education, um, talking about the uh, political view of educational research and pointing out how politicians have the entitlement to make decisions that are not just based on research, but are based on a range of judgments about what is right for a particular society. It's a very interesting speech that. And um, I remember uh, Jeff Whitty's, late Jeff Whitty's presidential address uh, focused in on these matters as well. And I think that has been a kind of area of interest for me, but also an area of tension over the years, the increasing um, awareness of the importance of these three communities actually communicating with each other. Yeah, so that absolutely. would be a few, few of the kind of key changes I've seen during the last uh, 40 or so years. What struck me was how important your experience, memory and others in education and education research, how important history is and how easy it is for politicians to attempt to airbrush out these things we've learned. Also, you're, the things you're saying about um, the research excellence framework, these tensions that you mentioned between the communities uh, and the work you did in the Bira RSA report that you mentioned Jeff, Jeff Whitty and so on. And in fact, in my presidential um, address and the two papers that were published in Burge, one, on, one was the address and one was the Close to Practice project, I'm basically arguing with my colleagues that this is about education as an academic discipline. That's why it, one of the many reasons it really matters, you know, we're fighting to remind people, I think, that we we already have a, a long history where, where Bira can say things with, with more confidence and authority because it's done all that work over nearly 50 years. So yeah. thank, thanks very much for that. Um, now, I think it's fair to say that, um, you know, we all experience the need to get on in our daily working lives in universities and so on. Um, but of course, the reality is that we we can't do any of this without our colleagues um, and all the different ways of thinking that that uh, that we develop as a result of working with other people. So I just wondered out, you know, wondered about the the kind of key influences, whether they're texts or people, um, that, that for you. Yeah, well, I would certainly acknowledge the collaborative element in my work. I've 
always collaborated and much of what I've published has been collaborative work and uh, I've been very very fortunate in all six of the higher education institutions I worked in um, in terms of the colleagues I've been able to work with there and if I had to single one out it is quite difficult because I've got fond memories of every one of them but it was probably arriving at Bristol Polytechnic in the fourth year of my higher education career when Jeff Whitty uh, was head of department and was in the process of building what turned out to be an incredible collection of educational researchers. So that enabled me to work not only with Jeff himself, but with colleagues like Andrew Pollard, Len Barton, later on Jenny Osger. It was just an incredible experience of uh, moving my career from being a teacher educator to being a teacher education researcher. And I mm. really did benefit from that enormously. I could say similar things about each of the institutions I worked in, but it was that kind of critical mass of colleagues there who were developing a research career that was very, very inspiring. I mean, the second yeah. big influence was moving to Scotland. It was like going overseas, really, because education policy in England had by that time, we're talking turn of the century here, become so ideologically driven that to get moved to a context where there was less ideological influence on education policy and a greater shared commitment to quality in education was very, very powerful experience. And that really was what inspired me to start that kind of comparative strand in my work. And then I can't finish this answer without mentioning the experience of, albeit a short time, at the University of Oxford, where amongst many colleagues, uh, two other former Bureau presidents, Anne Edwards and John Furlong, were incredibly supportive and good colleagues to work with over that time. And in terms of texts, Dom, I, I'd say in terms of education, I do think the um, knowledge and control, the new, so new directions in the sociology of education, which your colleague at the Institute, Michael Young, put together in the early 1970s, had a huge impact and continues to be a book I refer to. But I would also mention a non-education book. Um, I said I was going to talk about Raymond Williams. His book from 1960-61, The Long Revolution, one I first met when I was actually training to be a teacher in Bristol, is a, a wonderful account of um, a kind of steady move towards a democratic society. And it has a fantastic chapter in it on education. And, you know, my lockdown project, I didn't know it was going to be my lockdown project, but I, it has turned into that, is writing a book about the connections between Raymond Williams and education. He's not usually seen as an educationist. He was a cultural studies um, theorist. He was an adult educator. He was a university educator. But he has such a lot, in, there is such a lot in his work to offer us as educationists. I thought it was about time somebody tried to pull all of that together. So that's what I've been working on during lockdown. But it was mainly inspired by his book, The Long Revolution. Mm, fantastic. I agree with you as well about knowledge and control. Um, funnily enough, I mean, it's, I've had been able to uh, work a bit with um, you know, Michael Young because, you know, he's, he's at the UCL IOE. 
And in fact, Beer is doing its first digital symposium. It's coming up in the next couple of months. And Michael's work, and indeed knowledge and control, has been one of the inspirations for what we want to talk about. And we're going to think about curriculum. Uh, We're going to think about it in many ways, including sociological ways, but also in relation to how learners at different ages and stages, we, we, we want to know about how does knowledge, which is a cornerstone of curriculum studies, how does knowledge, how might it differ and what might be appropriate for, say, a three-year-old versus a 13-year-old and, and questions like that. So, yeah, I, I agree. Um, great, great to hear that uh, is happening. I look forward to hearing about it. Yeah, and, and I, I'm, I, I've been meaning to read, on because of your uh, enthusiasm, The Long Revolution, and maybe I'll have my own uh, lockdown project to read it. So... Bit of advice then for early career researchers. We've mentioned them briefly today, but just your takeaway messages really on this one. Well, I, I think it's it's easy to say it's difficult to do, but it's if you haven't got a doctorate, get one. Okay. When you've got your doctorate, build on that PhD or EdD and look to establish networks with colleagues in your own establishments, but also elsewhere nationally and internationally and I mean for me it was working in groups that really got me going the support you get from collaborating with colleagues we mentioned this earlier but I've been fortunate there was CAPER that we mentioned there was a teacher education group which is a five nation group in fact including the Republic of Ireland and then more recently we had a group based at Oxford called Poverty and Teacher Education that looked at the Uh, implications of poverty for teacher education and work that initiated under that group still goes on today. So I think it's about networking and collaboration. That's how to get the most out of your research career. Excellent. Thank you. Um, And I would put in a plea that um, doctorates by publication um, remain an important part of um, university life. I think there's been some threats to them. Not all universities do them, but for some colleagues who have certain career trajectories, they can be a really excellent way of of developing um, their their careers at the early stages. So we're now at the point where none of us likes to say things briefly, (laughs) but... For this question, it's the time for the key message that you'd like to give to the wider educational and educational research community. I can do it briefly, Dominic, because it's simple. Education matters and uh, social justice matters. And if that's true of education and social justice, then it's equally true of educational research, both for social justice and for improving education. That's my message. Well, I can think of hardly a more important thing to be said at the current time. Ian, it's been a huge pleasure to talk to you again, um, although admittedly we are in different places on different computers and we, we would, of course, in normal circumstances have welcomed you to talk at the Bira conference. However, I'm sure we will find a way to do something like this in person But for now, I just want to say thank you so much and congratulations on this um, tremendous award. 
Well, thank you very much, Dominic. And I do very much hope to see you and many colleagues at next year's Bira conference. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Thanks, Ian. Thanks for listening to the Bira podcast. For the latest news on Bira events and activities, visit www.bira.ac.uk. Don't forget to save the date for Bira Conference 2021 in Birmingham. The conference will run from the 14th to the 16th of September 2021. Abstract submission closes January 31st, 2021. Visit our website for more details.